Gentlemen, good morning. Welcome to the Vegas Gang podcast for February 23rd, 2012. The Vegas Gang is a roundtable discussion show for issues related to casinos in Las Vegas, Macau, and the rest of the world. This is the smartest podcast on the entire internet. Let me go around the virtual table and introduce the guys. We have Mr. Chuck Monster, the editor-in-chief at VegasTripping.com, coming to us from a secret location today. What's happening, Chuck? Hello, greetings from the secret location where everything is surrounded by cardboard. <laughs> yes, the deep in the cardboard factory. Um, yes. Dr. Dave Schwartz, the director of UNLV's Center for Gaming Research. What's happening, Dave? I'm doing just fine. Uh, I have not been investigated for receiving any improper gifts from any casino executives from any company, so I'm doing great. My name's Hunter Hilligus. I am completely willing to accept gifts. Um, uh, my address is available after the jump. Um, <laughs> let's see. So announcements. I don't think we really have any announcements today. Um, just, uh, you know, hope everyone's doing, doing well. Um, we typically record the show in the afternoon. We're doing a, uh, an AM recording. So this is, you know, a little bit different. I've got coffee instead of, uh, my, uh, you know, my beer in front of me. So, um, so, uh, yeah, so. Of course, the big story this week is that uh, Circus Circus has renovated their guest rooms, and they're <laughs> very proud of, of what they're doing. Uh, no, I mean, they have, right? They sent out press releases about that. But really what we want to talk about or start off with is win v Okada. So, man. So Saturday, uh, Saturday night, I was actually in Las Vegas. I was um, hanging out with some friends, and actually at Wynn. Um, and then, you know, go, go to bed. It's kind of a late night. And then uh, Sunday morning, my phone starts blowing up, uh, getting text messages from people and, 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 you know, messages like, this is unreal. And I, I'm like, huh? <laughs> um, so I uh, try and figure out what, what the hell these people are talking about. And, of course, I discover that um, Wind Resorts had uh, informed the world that they had canceled the shares um, that belonged to uh, their largest shareholder, Mr. Okada. Um, they took this action based upon a report that they had commissioned that uh, detailed alleged um, attempts by Mr. Okada's company to bribe officials in the Philippines as part of their gaming project there. Uh, they redeemed the shares at a 30% discount. Uh, the rationale there is that there are restrictions tied to um, how they're voted, and thus they're worth, worth less than the shares would be worth on the open market. Uh, and that over the next 10 years, the company will take on $1.9 billion in debt and pay Okada um, over that period. So, you know, this is like dropping the A-bomb on this whole situation. We'd watched the two sides battle it out over the past uh, month or so. Uh, <clears throat> Okada had some questions about the donation the company had made to Macau University that had turned into a lawsuit um, over examining the books and a potential fight for directors on the win board. Um, 
And it looked like, you know, that was the judge had signaled that uh, Okada may have some right to look into some of those books. That has not progressed beyond that. There actually was supposed to be a hearing today that's been postponed. But um, to see this go to this next stage where, you know, basically he's been booted out of the company and uh, his ownership has been, you know, taken away. It's This is amazing, right? I mean, this is just – you don't fuck with Steve Wynn, I guess, man. This guy, um, you know, he, he – Okada definitely, you know, brought a knife to a gunfight, it seems. Um, now, of course, this is far from settled. There are many different ways this can go, and we'll, we can talk about that a little bit. Uh, and – I actually read the report, the the free report that got one of the um, you know former director of the FBI has a has a security consulting firm that does this kind of thing and and uh, that report was posted and I read that uh, <clears throat> through a little bit you know it's it's interesting there's some TikTok on some of the uh, on some of um, what they're alleging he did and we can talk about that a little bit too in case people are interested but man so i just you know at first i just love to get reaction right so chuck you're in the midst of moving i don't know how closely you're following the news at the moment but what did what did you think when you when you saw this well i i have only partially been following this uh in the last few days as you mentioned because i got other shit going on but i did read the uh transcript from the conference call and had followed it previously to that and it's it's quite amazing how this disagreement has mushroomed uh to a mushroom cloud <laughs> it's it's like one guy says you did this the other guy says well you did this before that and then another guy says you did this before that and now win seems to have uh pulled out whatever card he had been holding uh to completely uh, napalm Okada's uh, reputation and to smear him, destroy him, and get him out of the company. Uh, the thing that, that, that I took away from reading this is, well, yeah, you know, these guys do all sorts of stuff to uh, to be in business, and this is kind of the way it works. Uh, uh, and to some degree... You know, even even a knucklehead like me, they do this kind of stuff too. Hey, you know, come check out our new hotel rooms. Hey, come to the come to do this and come to do this and come visit and check, check this out. So they were kind of giving they give away free stuff. The company win gives away free stuff in exchange for influence, or uh, you know, all the time. So what they're accusing Okada of, they do themselves on a smaller scale pretty much nonstop all the time. So it's kind of silly that they're making such a huge, okay. huge big deal out of it. Well, let me just, let me say this. So I read the uh, actual report on the allegations and it's, it sounds a little bit different. Now, of course, I don't know what's true. And Okada um, basically says, you know, they, they had, uh, they they had a predetermined outcome and they found a way to get there right so he's basically saying they wanted me out they found some and they found some way to do it um and he of course is denying these things so well the report is interesting so it basically centers around mostly this one trip uh to win macau that um these officials of the filipino gaming commission uh, went on. And basically the way this works, I guess, is that, um, 
Universal, the uh, Okada's company, has an account with Wynn Resorts that they keep about $100,000 in that they use for uh, when, you know, if Okada wants to send guests somewhere or if employees of Universal travel to a Wynn property and need, you know, need to have – it's like a charge account. It's an expense account that they keep funded. And so apparently what – according to the Wynn report, what happened was Okada call – or Okada's assistant calls up, you know – Ian Coughlin and is, and is basically like, I need a, a, the best room you have for this very important VIP. And um, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to, I don't want to say who all the people are. Um, <clears throat> I just want to, you know, here's this one name. There's going to be other people staying in the room, but I don't want to say who they are. I, I don't want their names in the register, right? Which I guess is against the law in, Maca- in Macau. In Macau, you're supposed to register each guest by name, right? You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to do that. So already it's, you can tell that already the the um, wind people are like okay you know this seems strange and suspicious so they start doing their own research and um and trying to figure out who these people are and you know they determine that they're uh that they think they're linked to the the gaming commission in the philippines they come and they're actually uh given cash from the wind macau cage to buy a purse for the guy's wife um you know their their expenses are covered in that way so it's like it's it's not just like they're they're taking this free room uh like you might get in a in a PR type situation. I mean it's like a it's like an all expense paid junket down to like that you would maybe give a high roller, you know, the kind of the kind of treatment that you'd get if you were losing a lot of money in the casino. Um I mean they're actually giving these guys cash which which they uh went out and used to buy stuff from. I mean, it's just it's pretty interesting to see that back and forth and to look at, you know, the, the funny part is to see the it's from the perspective of the win employees. So you can see like when we then engaged our background search to determine who these people were and what they were doing. And like, they're, they're like totally checking out um, the backgrounds of all, all these people. Cause they're clearly very suspicious about uh, how this was all going down. Right. So it's interesting to look at that part of the report. Um, you know, and the other, the other alleged aspect of this is that during a board meeting, Okada basically said, yeah, this is just how you do business over there. Um, you know, some, some, if true, some pretty damning statements about, uh, you know, basically like, yeah, this is just the way things are. And, you know, you hire consultants to give gifts and it's just, it's a normal part of doing business. Um, it's part of the culture and, uh, you know, Okada never signed the code of conduct, uh, the, the ethical statement that the directors were supposed to sign. And he didn't go to the foreign corrupt practices, um, uh, training that they have for directors and, you know, he, he, he says it has to do with the translation issues and scheduling, and, it's you know, there's really nothing to that. And he strongly denies uh, that he said those things in the board meetings. Um, so we don't know, you know, exactly how that's going to come down yet. But it's pretty interesting to look at the stuff that they've come up with. The, my favorite comment from people has been, like, a hundred grand. Like, man, these guys are cheap. You can buy them off for nothing. Um, so I don't know. I think it's, it's pretty interesting. But, Dave, I want to go to you. What, what, what did you think when you saw this? Well... You know, my initial reaction was, number one, $110,000 was not as much as I thought it would cost to grease the wheels to get a gaming license and to get everything all squared away. Number two, as Chuck said, that, yeah, this might be kind of common practice, and it's just that they went after him and caught him. Something kind of a little bit funny, um, on page 31 of the free report where they talk about this trip of the Korean government officials to win Las Vegas, I actually spoke to those officials about stuff so it's kind of interesting for my my thing so i am 
somehow ensnared in this, <laughs> this thing in a very tangential way. But the, you know, obviously there's a fundamental disagreement here between Wynn and Okada and any attempt to find out who is violating what law, you know, I think is not, I don't think that's going to be the real story here. The real story is the relationship between Wynn and Okada and Okada. And that apparently now is never going to be fixed. This is not an MGM Dubai world thing where they file lawsuits and make allegations and patch it up. So I think we're in this for the long haul and they're both going to go to the mat on it. And Wynn is going to do his best to get Okada out and Okada is doing his best to probably get a better share price for a stock at this point and do whatever damage he can to do to win on the way out. And it's funny, the... um, Philippine commissioner said that he's collateral damage, and I wonder how much more collateral damage there's going to be in the struggle between the two of them. And right. I don't think it's just going to be the Philippine. You know, you can have Macau brought into play here, and there's all there's, sorts of Well, stuff. then there's Korea, too, in the report, right? Yeah. They say they're not sure, yeah. but they are sus- suspicious. Well, the deal is, is that they're basically... Korea, they have this, this Incheon free economic zone where they're thinking about putting casinos, and apparently Mr. Okada might be interested in that. So during G2E 2010, there's a group of Korean officials in the U.S., and that makes a lot of sense. If they're thinking of legalizing gaming, they should be at G2E. So apparently they're saying that some of their rooms were comped at win while they were here uh, roughly in the time period of G2E a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. So, and, that, and that's another question. If you look at who goes to, you know, if you want to look at who's in town for the Global Gaming Expo, who gets rooms comped, where do they get them comped? You know, I, I don't know if that's uh, an investigation that we, we really want to start right now. Yeah, so that's sort of like, another, there's a bunch of different tangents I'd like to explore here, but that's one of them is the sort of question of, you know, those in glass houses maybe don't want to be throwing stones. How, I assume that, you know, that, um, and I'm not trying to say that, Win is like out there breaking the law and doing sketchy stuff. But generally speaking, most businesses of that size don't really want to be scrutinized that closely because even in the mostly even in the most well-run businesses, sometimes stuff happens that isn't supposed to happen or stuff that is sort of on the edge of where those things are supposed to be. You know, throwing the doors open, and I, I have to assume that they're going to be looked at closely. I mean, it's already the SEC has started to look at it. Um, it's definitely starting to snowball. So, you know, how big of a problem could that potentially be for a company like Wynn? Um, you know, it's operating in different places with different laws and, um, you know, what's the potential for blowback? Well, compliance is a full-time job here for a lot of people. So obviously they'll have to look at that process and see how this is allowed to happen. It's clear that they're making the differentiation between Mr. Okada as a director of Win, also in his role as the chairman of Aruze, and they're really bracketing him in that way and saying, well, his misconduct was in his role as Aruze and promoting his own developments, not as an agent of win. So I think that's one step there. Now, if Okada's able to find any kind of impropriety on behalf of agents of win, then you've got a whole other area open up here. But yeah, I mean, I think this is a really slippery slope. You know, for example, when president Obama came to Vegas and stayed at the Bellagio, you know, did he pay for his room? And, you know, 
I would assume there's some people, just because they're well-known or because they're influential, probably don't have to pay for a lot of meals when they go out. Right. And does that mean that there's something improper going on? You know, not necessarily. Right. It's a complicated, potentially complicated issue. And, uh, you know, to cast um, such direct light on it, you know, could potentially bring out a lot of those kinds of situations that, uh, you know, could at least have question marks associated with them. Whether or not they're valid is a whole separate, whole separate thing. So what do we think is the out- of the outcome is going to be? I mean, is this – I think you're right, Dave. The relationship between Okada and Wynn personally seems – permanently severed. It's hard to imagine <laughs> that this could recover. So, you know, that, but that doesn't mean they don't have to be buds for him to have shares in the company. Right. I mean, it, the, the company has said that they've already canceled these shares, that they're gone. Mm-hmm. They're, they, you know, Kim Sinatra, their counsel basically said, this is, that action was irro- um, irrevocable. Irrevocable. <laughs> and they, that can't be, yeah, too much. I'm coffee. I'm going crazy. Um, and so, I, you know, I sh- there's got to be some way to remedy that if they really wanted to. But let's say that, that that's a done deal. It is basically is it basically now down to how much he's going to get for them and over what period of time? I would imagine that it is because, again, if you've got a guy who now obviously does not have the best interests of the company at heart and is making allegations against the company, you know, I don't think you want him in your house. As a shareholder, right. if you don't have to have them there. So, yeah, I, I can't see anybody saying yeah, it's a good idea for somebody who owns a fifth of the company to be making allegations against the chairman and making allegations against the company. And, you know, incidentally, now that we've said that he's violated the FR, FCPA, FCPA, is it, did I get that right? The Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Yeah. So now that he's violated, if, oh, I don't want to pronounce that. It might not be, uh, <laughs> uh, FCC, <laughs> FCC friendly there, even though we're not on the radio. So anyway, now that he's violated that, do we really want him in the company as a director? So yeah, I don't think that can go forward. Obviously, he's going to want to get more for his shares. Obviously, Win is going to want to give him less. You know, the whole thing is just fascinating because all sorts of things are probably going to come to light here. So we get to see a little bit more into the inner workings of Win Resorts. It's you know I. It's one thing to revoke the guy's shares, right? So you can take the position that, assuming he's guilty of these things, the company has a responsibility to make sure that their shareholders are um, n- not going to be a regulatory burden, right? Losing a gaming license would be, uh, you know, it would be terrible. It would, it would, it would uh, kill the company's ability to make money. Um, so in, in that, looking at it from that aspect, um, you know, maybe they were acting, assuming these things are true, maybe they were acting, doing what they had to do. But to then go and say, yeah, and we're going to pay you 30% less and do it over 10 years because, you know, we think they're worth less. I mean, that's really like, screw you, buddy. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a significant discount. Yeah, that is. I mean, I know they have a rationale for it, but still, that's really like, um, the, yeah, we're screwing you and now we're screwing you again. I mean, it, it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, it seems audacious of them to to do that, uh, and I'm sure he's going to fight that aspect of it no matter what. Oh, definitely. Um, so I guess what happens next? There was supposed to be this hearing today on the original lawsuit for the the one for access to the uh, books, which has been delayed. And I, I, they didn't really say why it was delayed. They basically just said it had been put off. So I'm not sure if that has to do with this. 
I mean, clearly, you know, <laughs> Okada's standing has changed a little bit since then, right? He's <laughs> technically no longer a shareholder in the company, um, though I, I believe he's still a director until he resigns or mm-hmm. they would boot him through some kind of shareholder action. So I guess technically he's still a director of the company. Um, and then this second, you know, Wynn also filed suit against Okada for a breach of fiduciary responsibility. So that lawsuit will go forward. And you have to assume that Okada is going to countersue. I don't think he's done that yet, has he? Not to my knowledge. Yeah. So there's um, still plenty of back and forth to uh, to occur here. But, man, it's it's pretty incredible. Um, and uh, just to see this all play out in public. And we thought it was a big deal when they were arguing over the books and that donation. And then to have it go to this level, I mean, this is this is pretty insane. Yeah, it really escalated really quickly. Yeah. In a really, really nasty way. I mean, if you look at the documents, it sounds like they've been uh, kind of not agreeing on things for a while. But um, it really it really went from zero to 60 here in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. And they boarded up his restaurant. That's true, right? So um, – they, I think they would say that was a long planned renovation, but yeah, you know the uh, Okada. If you go to Win Las Vegas, Okada is no longer on the menu. Um, it's pretty much completely gone. It's been removed from all the maps. It's boarded up. Uh, my understanding, though, it's still open at Win Macau. Um, though it will be interesting to see how quickly they change that name. <laughs> I can't remember who was telling me this, uh, but wouldn't it be? You know, I assume that Win Resorts is probably uh, trademarked <laughs> the Okada name. To protect the yeah. restaurant. So be, it'd be especially delightful if Okada couldn't even use his name in that in those venues anymore because he licensed it to the company as part of the, uh, as part of the restaurant deal. <laughs> so Wynn owns the trademark on Okada's name, which is uh, pretty funny. Um, hey, there's another lawsuit in there we can have. Yeah, exactly. It's, this is, this is crazy stuff. Uh, it, I don't know. It's, it, it's super interesting for people like us that like to watch this stuff, but uh, I can't wait to get access to all the documents that are going to have to be unfurled as part of this process. Another question I have is I'd really like to know how what percentage of guests are incognito because there's there make it makes references to these people being incognito in the guest book, right? But you know how common is that? You know. Obviously, there's some cultural considerations here. A lot of Asian high rollers don't really want publicity. Right. So I could see this being a common practice for a lot of high rollers. I'm sure it is, right? I mean, uh, you know, even in the United States, celebrities often are, you know, using fake names or whatever um, when they check into hotels. I'm sure it's incredibly common, both, you know, with the hotel's knowledge and without, right? I'm sure there's sort of some of both going on. Another question I have is how many villas does Win? Macau have right because it's Villa eighty one. Villa eighty one. Keep, re- keep referencing. I don't know. Yeah. I, you got to assume that that eight is because of the Chinese number eight, right? All right. So he probably only has ten or less than ten. It's eighty eighty one. I would assume that they would do that for three eighty five. Right. I mean, I'm just yeah. guessing, but I assume it's yeah. That makes sense. That makes thing. a lot of sense. It's probably Villa one, right? So it's you know they're supposedly their most luxurious accommodation. I'll um, tell you what. If we ever get the Vegas gang band together. The name should be Villa 81. <laughs> that would be a good band. I love it. I love it. So, uh, Dave, I have a question for you as it relates sure. to your job. You know, how, how does this impact your – how does this impact sort of the historical record? I mean, when something like this happens, do you 
Are you collecting documents for a file oh, yeah. somewhere? Okay. Yeah, you know, I'll print out this report. Uh, you know, I've got the report, so I'll print that out, the free report, and we'll file it. And, yeah, uh, you know, they, generally speaking, uh, talk speaking as a historian, a lot of times you get stuff that wouldn't usually be pulled into the historical record comes into the historical record through lawsuits. Uh-huh. So you're able to find all sorts of stuff. You know, in doing my research into Jay Sarno and writing Grandissimo, I was able to find out all sorts of stuff about what he was doing because he was sued for bribing the IRS. So it's it's a tragedy when somebody gets involved in court proceedings, but for a historian, it's a real boon because suddenly they're documenting what they're doing and they're talking about the practices. So, you know, we might be able to find out what percentage of people are in incognito in uh, Macau if this goes forward because – Okada would probably try to prove that this was not an uncommon practice. Right, right. Yeah, I, just thought, I was thinking about that today. You know, it's interesting how much of this stuff is going to come out. And obviously, you know, you want to capture that for future researchers mm-hmm. and whoever might want to look at it down the road. Oh, yeah. Um, all right. Anything else we need to say on this topic at the moment before we move on? All right. Good enough. So it's uh financial reporting season again and so that means that uh all of our favorite gaming companies are talking about their earnings or lack of earnings um and one you know there are two in Las Vegas that reported just recently that uh are notable one is Boyd Gaming who um of course owns the stalled echelon project and so you know every time they do one of these calls we look. We do a little bit of, you know, I think criminology and try and figure out what they're going to do there. And they and they, um, you know, nothing's happened on that site for quite some time. And so, do we did we learn anything new this time around? Anything new on Echelon? And you know, Chuck, as you sort of posted on this topic, what does the fact that we still don't have any news mean for Echelon? I don't know. <laughs> No news is good. We don't know. They don't know. They're not saying anything. They're not saying anything. So since the fact that they don't say anything, we can assume that that means nothing, that nothing's happening. Right. You know, I was really surprised in the review journal that uh, the reporter had access to the to Boyd CEO and didn't even pose the question in, in, in talking to them. There must have been a gag order or does the review journal not, not be, you know, the upswing in the economy as a reason why, you know, boys should at least be considering something and ask them, are you considering something? You know, it only right. takes two seconds to ask a question. Why did they not ask is really a big question. And is that because they said, we don't have any, don't right. ask. Right. You know, is that a condition of the interview? It's just- I haven't listened to the Boyd call, so I don't really know what they said or didn't say about it. Well, I don't think they said much of anything. Um, it sort of continues to be this thing that you know, they punt on and, and say that they'll address when the time is right, more or less. Um, you know, it's it's still sitting there stalled. The, the Las Vegas economy seems to be improving a little bit. I mean, that article you linked to is talking about some improved visitation. I guess, you know, I assume that they must have some kind of metric that they're waiting to hit, right? They must have worked up some kind of analysis that says, you know, we need to see these things happen for us to get rolling on this again. Um, though it would be fascinating to get access to that decision-making process, right? To have a better understanding of what they're looking for to make that happen. But yeah, nothing. 
<laughs> uh, it's it would be great to see that started again. I mean, obviously, you know that that project I think has a better chance of getting going someday than, than the Fontainebleau thing down the street for all kinds of reasons. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, just again, I was there this past uh, this past weekend and walking by there, and uh, you know, such a huge, big, empty hole, you know, or whatever the opposite of a hole is, a uh, mound of yeah. steel. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's just it's too bad. I'd love to see it get going. I think they could do, you know, it's such in some ways it's an interesting project because they had success with Borgata, but they haven't really attacked the Las Vegas market with a higher end property. And it would be really interesting to see what they would do. Right? They they bring hopefully would bring a different spin on it than um, some of their competitors. So I don't know. We'll have to, I guess, continue to wait and see. Three months from now, we'll check in again. And see what they have to say. <laughs> um, which which would come back online first, the Sahara renovation hmm. or Echelon? Echelon. You think? Absolutely. Yeah. I, think so. yeah. I mean, the Sahara renovation is, you know, less dollar signs. So I guess in that aspect, it would be easier to get started. But it, you know, it still seems like a very questionable and sketchy project. And it's in a really not a great location and there's all kinds of problems with it. Right. So I would, I would much rather see echelon get going than Sahara 2.0 or 3.0. Strategically, there's no, Oh, you go ahead, Chuck. I was just going to ask the question of how long can that thing sit there? Do they give a time frame 10 years or so that it could sit without damage? I, you know, I, I want to say that is about what they said, but I, I, uh, I'd have to look it up. But yeah, there definitely was some um, question originally when they mothballed it about how long that stuff would stay before you know they would before that structurally it might become a question mark. And it was a long time. They basically made it sound like you know they have plenty of time to make this decision. Well, if you look at the property, they haven't taken down any of the billboards or advertisements from the last days when it was in this, its death throes, and. To me, that just says this isn't a priority for you. You know, if there is going to be work happening, you think, okay, let's get it prepped, let's move forward. But they, you know, it's just basically it's just sitting there, getting progressively more dilapidated looking. Mm-hmm. So to me, that says nothing's happening. You know, secondly, I don't know how you can say this. You know, what is going to make sense for the market? What's going to be competitive for the market is more high end. Prop, you know, more high-end hotel rooms in that part of town. Boyd, if they're looking to borrow money, can make a compelling case that a Boyd gaming property on the Strip will benefit from their regional casinos and is going to make sense for the company and is going to boost revenues to the company because it'll help drive business at the regional casinos throughout the country. I, I don't think that SBE can make that same argument for what for the Sahara. Right. You know, it's just another hotel in their string of hotels, and it's going to be cannibalizing or trying to cannibalize the the guests of many of the high end places, including one of the places where they already have a business interest. Right. So, I just, it does not make a lot of well, sense. I don't, I don't, I don't foresee a renovated Sahara cannibalizing anything at <laughs> Right. Well, that's <laughs> no matter what color the paint is. Right. I mean, it's not going to, no matter what they do, it's not going to be a high-end property. And so that is also sort of incongruous with what they're trying to do with their SBE brand, right? If a customer goes to the one in LA and they, you know, they're treated well and the hotel's nice, and then they come to the Las Vegas one, it's like this dumpy old place with new paint. 
I, that seems like I wouldn't put that in my uh, collection of hotels if I was trying to cultivate the luxury market. Yeah, but they no. hired Gensler. <laughs> Who did you such a great job doing the planning? Job <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, yeah, boo Sahara. I think what what Boyd would be smart to do is finish the damn thing. Don't shoot for the top of the market. Do a do a shoot for the middle of the top of the market, or the bottom of the top of the market, or the top of the middle market. You know, you don't need to put the most expensive finishes on it. You know, just make sure it's a good. Great place where people who miss the stardust, the people who want to stay in some place clean but don't want to spell and spend a million dollars to go to Vegas to go go mm-hmm. to. Really, there's there's an untapped pile of market there that that they can easily reslot Echelon into. Make it like a kick-ass Mandalay Bay. Yeah, that's exactly what I would do. And I would basically I would build it in stages like Mandalay Bay, where I would build you know, maybe a two to 3,000-room casino resort. Have space there for a convention center expansion when the business travel, you know, if that continues to improve. And then, you know, you've got your space for for more hotel product if you need it and even more gaming product if there's ever a need for it, which I don't think there will be because of technology and a lot of other reasons. But I would do it in phases. And I think they couldn't lose for that. You know, if they have – if they've got their national feeder system and they're sending people there instead of Orleans – I think they would it would yeah. it would benefit the company as a whole, make it a stronger company, make it a stronger player regionally. But clearly the scope of the project has to change from its original design. Absolutely. You know, I would scale it down. I would even seriously look at the Stardust name. Yeah. Bringing that back because that's a name that people know. It's got it's got a lot of history, it's marketable. People know it and it's yeah. about Vegas and it's it's fun. So I, I would do that. And again, build it in phases. Maybe not start with the convention stuff, but have that, you know, be able to flip a switch and start building that. Yeah. Right. Well, hotel, the casino, showroom, mm-hmm. yeah. and the mall, and then deal with the convention center out back and yeah. scrap Mondrian and all the other crap that was going to be in the front. Just get rid of it. Yeah, but they've already. I think the chiller plant and the power plant area is already pretty much finished. Yeah. So they've got the you know they've got that infrastructure which they can reuse. It's just a matter of scaling it down and then leaving space to build out. May in the meantime, maybe you put something there, you know, a little park or something, or surface parking. You know, you can put something fun there, even pocket parking. Yeah, pocket parking. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's a lot of stuff they could do with that land. Well, I hope we get something soon, right? I mean, it would be great and fun to be able to track a new construction project. Um, but we'll have to keep waiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other company that reported this week um, that's of interest is MGM Resorts International. Uh, you know, they, they've had losses for the past, you know, several quarters. Well, many quarters now. Um, and, you know, again, uh, the company lost money. I think to me the interesting story with MGM is what to track what's going on with City Center. Um, you know that that's continuing to be a little bit of a drag, though it's improving uh, slightly. This is the I think the first quarter that they had the consolidated reports from their Macau property on their balance sheet. They changed the ownership structure there so that they now own enough of it that they can treat it as part of the one of their assets and not a joint venture. 
which helps quite a bit. That make the, makes their numbers look quite a bit better. Their Macau property is doing a lot better than it was. Uh, it just sort of stumbled a little bit out of the gate, but it seems to be improving and it's bringing in a lot of money. Uh, not as much as its competitors like Win, but it's still doing well, and I'm sure MGM is very happy to have it. Uh, but what you know, what do you think about City Center based on these results? Are we would we have expected it to improve faster? I mean, it's they've had quite a bit of runway now, and uh, it's still not really uh, performing up to the levels that they expected. Um, how how long? How, how much runway should they have? And uh, you know, is there a point? Are things improving enough that the current leadership has no danger of being replaced? Any opinion on that, Dave? I've definitely got an opinion about it. Whatever it does from here on out, the fact is is that it's not doing what they planned it to do. It is not a mixed-use development. Basically, it is a casino hotel with a mall in front of it and condo hotel properties around it and condos in front of it. And originally it was planned as this mixed-use development that was going to be transformational, blah, 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 blah. You know, as a casino resort, it's doing reasonably well. They have – the casinos doing pretty well. They're getting a lot of high-end play down there. Part of that is because they can shift people over, but there are people who legitimately want to be ARIA customers who are staying there because they like the room product and for lots of other reasons. So as a casino, it's doing well. As this big transformational development, I don't think it's ever going to – be any, you know, is ever going to come to fruition. And I think because of that, the company really needs to look at its decision-making processes. You know, this is the biggest decision that the current chairman of the board made with the company. And it turns out it was a wrong decision. They got a lot of outside consulting expertise who it turns out gave them bad advice because what they built is not what the market ended up needing. So I would think there'd have to be some internal process where they look at their decision-making and say, how do we avoid making this kind of decision again in the future? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's pretty much what I think about it. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be a successful casino because it is. Right. Just the bigger the, – the, the process of getting there was, I think, the wrong process. Well, the hyperbole that surrounded its inception and opening you know, as a game-changer and um, that it was going to redefine Las Vegas, I mean, those statements look pretty silly in retrospect. They absolutely do. And I think the whole – when you start talking about something as mixed use and then it has the same exact components as MGM Grand, which has been there since 1993, you know, obviously I'm talking about the addition of the residences or two. You know, I – it kind of strains credibility when your own company has the same product. And I get what they were going for, which was this – residential urban campus type thing. But the fact is they did not integrate it with the surrounding urban area. And some of this goes back to Paul Steelman's idea and the idea that I had in suburban Xanadu about the strip being suburban essentially. And, you know, you don't want to do an urban thing there. And if you do, it's going to, you know, strange things are going to happen. But, you know, basically if you look at it, I find it very ironic that a product project that was championed by somebody with a minor in urban planning or major in urban planning is one of the least accessible pedestrian projects in the city Mm -hmm. on the strip. It is so much harder to get into Aria from the strip than it is to get into virtually anything else. Right. So I I just find that incredibly ironic (laughs) 
that, that, you know, oh, well, this is the urban, you know, urban master planned and it has a complete lack of integration with the rest of the city, which to me would be the first step. It also says that there's a real problem when, as you're planning these things, you're not thinking about the end. I don't want to say end user agreement because it's, uh, I'm having end user license agreement stuff here. <laughs> the end user, you're not thinking about the person who's going to be seeing this at street level and walking around and how are they going to experience right. it, which to me is another major flaw in your decision making there. It's, you know, given all the technology that they use today in architecture to do pre-visualization and, and that sort of thing, it's even harder to understand how you can make mistakes like that um, when you when nowadays you can actually really see what these things are going to look like on a computer screen way before they're built. Um, I mean, there's no substitute for being there, but um, there are more and more tools that let you really get an idea if you're making a, a mistake or if you're on the right track. Yeah, and it should have occurred to somebody that it's easier to get from New York, New York to Excalibur than it is to get from Aria to Mandarin. Right. <laughs> or, uh, you know, from – so, yeah. So, so, Chuck, how much do you love City Center? You know, I, uh, I, I don't want to get involved in a gigantic city center bashing. I think we've done a, a hell of a lot of that in the archives. Um, Dave has nailed all the points pretty much uh, on the money regarding that thing. I, I'm happy for them that they're losing less money. You know, that's, that's a good thing. I know a lot of people who really like staying at Aria, and they like uh, the – you know, the casinos and the restaurants and some of the things that they offer there. Um, personally, you know, it's not my thing. But to, to continue with the, uh, the discussion from last episode, you know, MGM's really a mall operator. It's basically it. Whatever they can get to fill the space. And those things have been retail, casino, hotel, and they threw the real estate thing in there, which was a total mess. And to the last bit, you know, they're unloading these properties now. And I saw the post uh, on VT. Somebody sent us a thing where now they're trying to sell these things to Canadians. They've got Sotheby's uh, dropping properties inside the Mandarin for, you know, 50% discount. Now, of course, now that's 50% probably based on the original asking price, which was outrageous to begin with, you know, $500,000 for a 800-square-foot loft in Veer. <laughs> you know, these, these are all kind of questions, and I wonder if, you know, the real brain trust would say, you know what, let's take Veer. Let's just take it, forget the, forget the real estate thing. Turn that into buy whoever's in there out, buy them out to move, even give them a profit on the thing, get them the hell out of there, and turn that into like a loft hotel, you know, loft-style hotel living or, 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 you know, give it like a cosmopolitan party kind of vibe, brand it, rebrand it, and, and make it kick ass. Because obviously, the you know, the retail, the, the real estate play, it's not working, and it's never going to work. And they'll probably make, it, make more of their money off by selling off his hotel rooms and getting rid of some other dumpy properties that they're stuck with. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, they are trying to unload that real estate, uh, by any means necessary. Um, you gotta wonder, you know, if that's going to long-term be what they want, considering the people that are going to be buying them, given the fact that they're so much less expensive. Um, 
Well, they assume anybody that's in a anybody that's in a Veer unit is going to eat at right. You know the Javier's tacos, you know, or right. wherever. So speaking of that, which they, I wonder if that's supposed to be. If, I wonder if Javier's tacos is supposed to be their their anti China poblano. <laughs> yeah. So they ta- they were talking about changing restaurants. I think that's what you're referencing, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So they t- that that's supposed to be replacing Union, um, which has been closed for a little while. And I think they referenced the fact that they were going to be making some other restaurant changes as well, uh, though they didn't really announce the details. Um, so yeah. we you know we may see some changes. So not all the restaurants there have really performed um, to expectations, and uh, I think a lot of people were disappointed when they initially announced their restaurants because they were uh, sort of using the same chefs that they had at their other properties to do basically what seemed like retreads of a lot of those concepts. So it'd be nice to see something new and different. Uh, always, always like to get some new fun, weird food choices on the strip. That's always a good thing. Speaking of new and different and liking to see something new and different, I'm really kind of sad about union closing and not because of the menu, but because of the decor. That place was one of the freakiest looking groovy spaces. You know, it was like this spider web of wood that you're kind of trapped inside. And I, t- I remember when the first interior photos, Hunter, you probably recall this, we got leaked a big batch of interior photos like um, two months or so before opening. When I saw that space, I was just jazzed. I thought it was really, really exciting. And I, I'm, I'm a little sad to see what, what might happen or might not happen, because that was a really adventurous kind of piece of decor in there. Right. No, I think there's that's a good point. Uh, you know, who knows what's going to go in there, but uh, it <clears throat> one of the things about that particular space is it always seems strange to me was that there's no views of the outside, uh, given that it's yeah. up on an exterior wall. But uh, I think given sort of the water feature that's on the other side of that wall, it might be tough to make that happen. But anyway, we'll see what they do. Um, the last thing I want to talk about today is, is Dave, Dr. Dave's week, the week in the life of Dr. Dave. <laughs> so, Dave, you've had an interesting week. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been doing and what you've learned? Yeah, we had a group of 30 MBA students from Cass Business School in London came out to Las Vegas for an elective program about strategic marketing, and they're looking at the strategic marketing of Las Vegas. I was lucky to host them here at UNLV, and later on this afternoon, they're doing their presentations. So basically, it was a mix of having... I gave them a little lecture to introduce them to Las Vegas and set the scenery. They've heard from, from some other analyst-type folks, and they've also been getting presentations from a lot of the different companies. So um, Hard Rock, Wynn, Sands, MGM, Caesars. I've sat in on some of these, and I've learned some interesting things. Um, for example, in the Caesars presentation, we had uh, one segment on Link. And it's one of the interesting things is looking at how a big company makes decisions and how they have a lot of different groups of people who are very good at what they're doing but tend to be looking at different things and having different emphases. So the people in charge of the loyalty program might tell you, well, yeah, this is our customer base. 50-plus is our customer base. This is who we market to. This is where we're going. The people in charge of development say, well, look, we're we're underserving the 24 to 35 people, so we need to build something for that. And it's interesting that sometimes you wonder how operationally this is going to work out if you've got people building something for one group and the people running the loyalty program are 
going for the other group. The other thing was that apparently there still has not been a decision on what to call the new Imperial Palace. Hmm. Okay. And I'm going to throw that out to you guys. What do you think this, you know, being that they're already moving dirt around, right? what do you think this says about the whole process there for Link and what we can expect out of Link? Um, so I, real quickly, I was, you know, I walked by and they are starting to do construction. The carnival court area, um, is starting to get all torn up where, uh, where that walking, walking area is supposed to go. And I know they're doing some construction back behind where the wheel of doom is going to go. Um, I, you know, I think it's interesting. You could look at it a couple different ways, right? Does it mean that they don't think the name is important and they can basically stick whatever name they want on it? Um, does it mean that they had a name, a good candidate, and it fell through for some reason, and now they're having to backtrack? Um, I, you know, it, to me, it seems like if they have that, and I guess is it just that they don't have a name, or have they not really figured out how they're going to position and design the property? I mean, to some degree, um, you know, there are definitely properties where the name has no impact whatsoever on any of its physical characteristics, but there are other places where they're you know, definitely, uh, in, intertwined. Um, I, I think it's potentially telling, but I don't know without knowing a little bit more about what they're planning to do. Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I, you know, Harris, Caesars, the way that they seem to make decisions, very analytical. I think they would go with whatever name was best focus tested probably. Right. <laughs> yeah. It was interesting because the same question came up about, about Aria. One of the students said, you know, the name Aria doesn't mean a lot to me. And why did you pick that? And basically it was like, well, we threw some names around. This is the one people like the most. So we went with it. And right. I asked, well, what were the other names? Well, I don't remember. So obviously <laughs> there wasn't a lot of real consideration given to that. And then it's even like, well, it means something having to do with the climax of an opera. So it's fitting. And it's kind of funny how that you've got – when you don't have the name tied into the property, you've got that problem where it doesn't really fit and it doesn't come together. I would argue that if they're going to rebrand this as a horseshoe, to me, horseshoe has a lot of value with a certain customer who probably is the 50-plus customer right. who's going to Harrah's right now or maybe Bally's. And I would question whether you would want to tie that to Link, which is going after people in their 20s and 30s. And also, if you're, you know, if you're going to be branding this as a horseshoe, I would think that would look very different from something than if you're branding it as some Vidara-esque random string of vowels and consonants, <laughs> or you know that kind of thing. And what, how you're going to position that? So it, it was also very interesting to hear a little about a little bit about how they rank the properties and what they think of their different properties. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it was interesting. Chuck, do you have any opinion on this as far as the fact that they don't have a name yet and what that means? Yeah, I think, Hunter, you kind of got most of that right on the money. It, it means that, that, that the name, the branding of the place don't necessarily mean that much, that they don't really have a full picture yet as to uh, what they want to do. It sort of reminds me of the listening to the, uh, the conference call with Motley Crue, they're like, oh, we're going to do something. We're not really sure what, but it's going to be great. You know, uh, we'll figure it out. And of course, eventually they kind of did. You know, the name Link doesn't really make any sense either. You know, and these, the Harris guys, the Caesars guys, you know, they don't really build properties. They kind of buy stuff and slap a brand on it. So this is sort of a, I guess, kind of a new thing, but 
you know, they should just listen to the people. Call the thing the horseshoe. Just do it. It's done. The name is recognizable, and, it, and it's actually vague enough to where you can take that horseshoe brand and brand it anything. The horse, horseshoe doesn't necessarily mean, you know, cowboys and stuff. Right. It can mean, you know, a little lucky horseshoe. It can be, you can put crazy lights around it and make it like a motorcycle bar and horseshoe would make sense. You know, you can make it anything. You can make it young and youthful vibe and call it the horseshoe. It's just depends on what you surround that name with. And I never felt that Pinion's horseshoe, the original horseshoe back in the day was, you know, frumpy. It seemed kind of like electric and fun back in, in the, uh, in the eighties and nineties, you know? So I say, if they're listening, go to the horseshoe, it works. People will love it. It'll be an instantaneous brand. Everybody's been waiting for a horseshoe on the strip, and now is the time. Do it. I think if you ask me what I associate with the horseshoe brand, it's really gaming more than anything else, right? Because the yeah. I think mostly because of the chance. yeah, because of the foundation that Binion's created, right? It was infamous for a long time as yeah. being the place that would take whatever bet you wanted. That you know, hardcore gamblers really liked it down there because it was like a pure gaming experience. Um, that's sort of my first reaction when I hear the word horseshoe. Which, again, is a little bit at odds with the gambling product that they've got right now on the Strip, where you, you've got the dreaded 6.5 blackjack and that sort of thing. So I could see with a couple tweaks this being, you know, the horseshoe there could work. If you say, hey, it's about gambling, it's about fun, it's unpretentious, and we've got the fun next door. The interesting thing, getting to see the plans, is that the – and this might already be out there, so forgive me if I'm just rehashing it, but the Imperial Palace Porticochere is moving away from where it is to basically right behind Carnival Court on the north side of the building. Yeah. So that's yep. that's kind of cool, and I think that'll open up the property a lot. So it's kind of neat to see that. They're going to integrate from Harrah's to uh, the Flamingo really, really well. I was very impressed looking at the plans uh, to see how well they're going to make those walking spaces work. It's mm-hmm. going to be easier to get from Harris to the far end of the Flamingo than it is to get from the Strip to, you know, the buffet at Aria. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my other... Which is my a other... It's a hike to get there. Shush. Yeah. My, my other thoughts about this was that, again, a lot like City Center, this... You know, they're doing something that I think will be successful. It'll drive incremental food and beverage and entertainment revenues, which is something that the company is lacking. So I think it's a good project. I think it's well-conceived. I think it's in their budget. When they overstep is when they try to say that this is transformational. Right. And again, I had to listen to somebody say, well, right now there's nothing to do in Las Vegas. Right. If you check in your hotel at 3 o'clock, there's nowhere to go. And I raise a point of, well, you own Miracle Mile and you own the forum shops, and the forum shops is – last I checked, has the highest, you know, retail per square foot in the country. So obviously you're doing something right already. And I kind of asked a question, well, how is this going to tie in with that? And I expected something to say, well, this would be in the mid-range of the two. And instead I got something a little bit vague. But, you know, they're basically not going to be – they're going to focus on having unique to Vegas tenants there. So you're probably not going to see a Gap or Banana Republic. Right. I would say is a good thing. Yeah, definitely seems like a positive thing. You know, but I just wonder it's why. Oh, you go ahead. Dave, you continue. You were going. 
All right. It, I, it just kind of bugs me that every time somebody does something in Las Vegas, it's always got to be this has never been done before. Right. And I think that leads to people being let down because you're like, well, it's just a bunch of shops and restaurants and they're fun, but it's not transformational. You know, I think it's like, hey, this is something smart. We need to add this. We're doing it right. and it'll be fun. Yeah. yeah, this isn't that, that question, Dave, isn't really about the developers and the, and the business people. That's that's just the problem with PR in general is they take every stinking thing. You know, I get an email every week, probably twice a week, telling me that, you know, Matt King can turn rocks into bread and, yeah. uh, you know, pool water into uh, Jesus juice. You know, it's the greatest thing in the world, and I need to bring my dogs there, and they will be healed of fleas. You know, I don't know. But that's what they do, and the town is built on on that kind of messaging. And, you know, it works 85% of the time. You talk to anybody, you say, oh, I heard that that was great. I heard that was interesting. You know what you heard is you heard the press release. <laughs> but That's a good point. Yeah. You know, I, I don't see anything wrong with But I do think I do think let me just finish this last thing. I'm excited about Link because it's a place to kinda go outside a little bit. Right. You know, you, and, and not just like be trucking from one place to another, to go somewhere and kinda hang out and do some stuff and you're not like on the street getting pounded at, you know, in weather just because you're trying to get from place to place. This is a place where you can kinda stroll and take your time and hang out and sort of enjoy the weather, which, you know, if it's a day like today, <laughs> as it is, I'm sure it's like in Vegas as it is here, it's just gorgeous. This is the perfect weather for a place like Wink. It's beautiful. I don't see why you have to come out and say this is going to be the be-all. I mean, just why not just come out and say, look, we're going to build a great new addition. It's going to be a lot of fun. People are going to love it. We're going to bring some new vendors to the Las Vegas market, it's going to be great. You don't have to say it's the best thing ever, the first of its kind. It's going to blow your mind. You've never seen anything like this. Then, then there's the opposite of that, though. Because Gordon Absher at the at the podcast Palooza didn't do that with City Center. He was like, well, you know, it's a building with a casino and stuff. You know, <laughs> if you want to come, you can kind of come. You know, Gordon, why should my dad come here? I don't know. If he wants to, he can. He can go to any of our properties. I don't care which one to go to. You know, that's, that's the opposite of hyperbole. Right. So there's the point somewhere in between where you try and generate some degree of excitement. Hey, it's got this. It's got this. It's got this. And it's got this. You might like any of these things. And if you don't like that, you might like this, this, and this. It doesn't have to be, you know... Matt King's, you know, Jesus juice, pool water, uh, flea healing, you know, rocks into bread, Fandango. Right. <laughs> Did you hang up on me? No, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, you're still with us. It's, it's the greatest uh, response ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it's interesting. I, Dave, I'm jealous that you got to sit in on these things. I'm sure that there was a lot of really interesting info. Um, so, I, But I have a question. So how common are these kinds of... I don't know what you call them, seminar or get together or whatever. I, I mean, guess they're fairly common. I don't, you know, I don't get involved in too many of them. This is one of the more, this is one of the better organized ones because the folks from CAS really know what they're doing. They, you know, it's a very 
well-respected program with a lot of very smart students. A lot of them are already in business at executive levels, so they're kind of used to talking to important people. So it's easy for them to pick up the phone and get in touch with the right person. So it's really great getting getting to do it. I would say probably your average person, you know, if it was a class of undergrads coming to Vegas, they'll get me talking to them and maybe somebody from a casino and maybe a tour of something. But, you know, this is really the inside stuff, which is really neat to hear. Um, and the students then are going to be doing papers where they're pretty much evaluating the different operators and how they re- how they're responding to the challenges. So I'm really interested to hear those later on this afternoon. Wow, that does sound interesting. Well, I hope you, you'll um, you know share a little bit more of that maybe next time we talk. Or I will. I'd like form. to if I can. You know, I'm looking to see. And obviously, because it's a different institution, I can't guarantee it, but I'd really like to be able to publish some of these papers yeah. uh, on the website because I think it would be very interesting to get that out there. Yeah, definitely. Always interesting to get some different viewpoints on some of these things um, to see the way different people deconstruct some of these problems. Yeah, and there's another question i kind of like to throw out to you guys, and this is a tension that I had within myself because a lot of the people we talked to were not gaming people whatsoever. And they came in from finance. They came in from all different, all different industries, but had no gaming background. And most of them didn't gamble. My question to you is: Who do you think should be making the decisions in casinos? Should it be the gamers, or should it be smart people who know what they're doing hmm. from other industries? Wow, that's a good question. Well, can't there be both? Because that's Bobby Baldwin, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think yeah. if you look at some of the best operators, a lot of them came up through the gaming side. Um, or at least, uh, were, you know, had a lot of experience. I mean, look at someone like Steve Wynn, you know, grew up in gambling basically and, uh, was focused on that quite a bit as he was coming through that. Look at somebody like Bobby Baldwin. Yeah. I mean, the people that I think some of the most respected and most successful operators came from the gaming side and some of the people that we don't necessarily associate with visionary leadership, Jimbo. Um, are came from a tr- more traditional business background. Um, now, of course, that's not to say that you can't be successful on either track, but it seems like, at least historically, there are some things unique to sort of understanding the gambler that uh, maybe are not as obvious if you don't have that experience yourself. I think so, and I think I'm, I'm kind of going for that, especially in the marketing area. I could see you know one thing: your CFO or your development guy not being a gamer, but I think when you've got people involved in that process who will say, "I don't gamble," and you know, maybe even look down a little bit on people who do gamble, I think that affects the you know what the guest gets at the end. I think right. you need people who have a respect for it and appreciation for it, and say, "Hey." You know, I this is what I like when I'm doing it, so I think they would like this, as opposed to, well, this is what our metrics tell us, and they should love this, but right. they don't. I mean, you know, look at people are not happy with the changes that Marilyn Wynn Spiegel has been making at Win at Win Las Vegas. Uh, you know, she was uh, um, an HR executive for a long time, right? And uh, so that's a whole different set of experience that I'm sure is very helpful in managing people. And um, making some of the decision making, but it's not the same as someone that it was involved in the gambling operation who's really thinking, thinking of things from the perspective of a player. 
In defense of Marilyn, though, she has, you know, I don't know whether she gambles, but she has worked at pretty much every stop along the way. I think she ran a slot department. I think she ran a table games department. Okay. So as they were grooming her, as as Harris was grooming her, they had her do that, and she Let's has go. run a property. The people that I'm a little, that I tend to take with a bit of grain of salt is is people on a corporate level who have no property level experience mm-hmm. and have never worked on a property and don't know that, hey, you know, if we do this, it will lead to this. And I know that because I'm in the building with the guests and I'm hearing the complaints. So it's interesting, you know, it's interesting. I think you can, Terry Lanny is another great example. He did not come from gaming, but knew, learned the business and had a great appreciation for it. So I think no matter where you start, if you can get that experience, it will help you as an executive. I think, you know, I think that's an excellent point. And that maybe is the dividing line, right? Whether you have property experience or not. And that's why it makes statements like, I don't visit my competitors' properties even more (laughs) egregious. It's just, it seems like that when you say something like that, it just seems like you're completely out of touch with what makes the the whole town tick. Well, it it doesn't, I think a comment like that is intended to be, well, I don't need to stay at their Right, competitors, resorts, but it really just speaks about the person, you know. They say, "Oh, I don't like modern art," you know, <laughs> right. or "I don't, I don't like Chinese food." You know, I don't need to eat, I don't need to eat food that isn't well, whatever. You know, the bigger picture here is when you say gambler, I think we're talking about anybody who visits a resort for various reasons: foodies, spa hounds. Uh, people who just like luxury and comfort, people who like shopping. You know, you have to have some degree of a of a well-rounded understanding of the universe, you know, and all of its ways and means to, to truly be an effective leader in this type of business. You know, you have to know what makes luxury tick. Like, if you don't have any taste, if you're just born without taste, you just have bad taste, you don't know bad taste, you're not going to manage a high-end resort because you're not going to know the difference between a Manola Blahnik and, you know, Proquettes, which I guess are okay too, but still. And, and this is kind of the issue here. Some of these guys are just numbers guys. They're just bankers. Right. Jimbo. Right. You know, and that's basically what they do. But the function of MGM as a company, and I'm going to beat the dead horse again, is that they're a landlord. All they do is landlord. They don't necessarily... Uh, are not fully engaged in the content of the book. And the converse of that is a guy like John Unwin, who's, you know, he's very creative, obviously. He's very artistic, very creative, very much into, you know, the, 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 the salt and the taste of the earth. But on the other hand, dealing with exactly the bits of numbers and how to squeeze out the operations, how to squeeze out the details, he needs a Tom McCartney, he needs a Marilyn Wynn, you know, and possibly a Jimbo to kind of sort that track out. Until that point, you know, the Cosmopolitan is going to keep sort of waffling. Right. Yeah, and I also think it's interesting how it comes together in the different aspects. You know, you wouldn't have a person in charge of your food and beverage who didn't have any experience in restaurants. And you would, you know, if you want to run a good hotel, you're going to hire someone like Ramesh Sadwani who's had 20 years in hotels. And, you know, knows what he's doing. So it's very interesting how when it comes to marketing the casinos, specifically the gamblers, there's a little bit of a disconnect sometimes. 
Yeah, definitely. And there's a belief that if you have any kind of sales background, that'll automatically translate. Right. Um, so yeah, it's it's just fascinating hearing the different perspectives and and kind of learning a lot. I've learned a lot in the past couple of days. Well, it sounds like it sounds like it. It sounds like fun. So I'm definitely very jealous. <laughs> uh, but I think we're going to leave it there for uh, this time. Um, and we will do our sure bet segment. This is a segment where we get to recommend something to you in the audience that we think you might find interesting. It may or may not be related to casinos or Las Vegas. Um, so uh, here we go. Chuck, you've been moving recently. Any moving-related sure bet recommendations? You know what? I absolutely do. Um, the uh, I, If you live in L.A. or San Francisco or maybe New York, there's this foundation – it's called the Delancey Street Foundation, and they operate a a moving team, a team of movers. It's a nonprofit organization, and the movers are basically uh, guys who have gotten into a little bit of trouble with the law, and they renovate and rehabilitate these guys. They give them a place to live instead of going to prison, and they basically get them back into society, get them jobs, get them skills, get them to the, the, uh, they do counseling, they give them a place to live and feed them and get, get guys who are kind of in trouble back onto the right track of life. And I've used these guys to move twice. And the dudes are like the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet. Total military operation. They run up and down stairs with big, huge, heavy boxes, it's like the best possible moving experience, and the price is absolutely right. Wow. You check out the Delancey Foundation, and next time you move, if you live in California or San Francisco, and I think they're in New York too, uh, give them a shout. They've got like a five-star on Yelp. They're just top-notch, great, awesome guys. Give them a shot if you're going to move. Wow, that sounds great. That's a great tip. Um, we'll definitely link that one up in the notes as well. Uh, it's not like the guys you get at Home Depot who just kind of screw around a bunch. You know, these dudes are the best, and they'll rearrange your furniture for you when you get to the house. They'll do anything. Wow. Great. Great. That's a great tip. Thanks. But they don't move booze, so <laughs> it took me a couple of carloads to move my stash. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> um, Dr. Dave, you got something for us today? Oh, I sure do. Um just like Charles, I'm on uh, some email distribution lists. I found out a great opportunity for anyone out there who's a fan of Kiss. And who isn't a fan of Kiss? You can get for $500, there's a special VIP ticket that you can get access to the media-only press conference. And just think, you know, working journalists go to these things all the time. Don't have to pay us a dime, but you can go in just for $500. You also get a sneak peek of the entire facility, which is golf, golf, mini golf. You get to go to a catered VIP area. You get a $50 Kiss by Mini Monster Mini Golf gift shop card. You get access to the VIP area for the red carpet, a posh VIP cocktail party, a special swag bag, and a season pass to Kiss Monster Mini Golf which Ooh. is happening just down Harmon from my office. So I'm I'm so excited about this. I will probably sleep through the opening and not go just go to work. <laughs> but um I the thing that I 
Yeah, I mean, this while while we're talking about kind of marketing and PR and everything, this is just wild that they're like, okay, we're doing a press conference anyway. Let's throw that into our VIP ticket and let people go to that. And I, I just love the wording of this. You know, golfers, whether at the novice or professional level, are invited to come out and enjoy a round of mini golf. It's like, yeah, you know, so Phil Mickelson is going to be out there practicing the game in a mini golf course. Yeah, I I can see that. So it's it's just kind of funny. One of those great Vegas things that I hope is as much fun in execution as the press release is. That's crazy. Um, I, I've i been ignoring all of those KISS press releases, so I did not see that. Uh. Yeah, and originally I wasn't sure if, like, well, is this telling me that as a media person I'm they want me to pay $500 for this? or To which you immediately this? said, of course, where do I sign up? Oh, yeah, <laughs> only 500 <laughs> Wow, that's a crazy one. It should one. be mentioned that, that Gene Simmons discovered Van Halen. Yeah. A tie yeah. back to last week's sherbet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, thanks, Dave. We'll definitely uh, make sure people get on top of that. Oh, yeah. Um, my sherbet is um, an iPhone accessory. Imagine that. Uh, <laughs> this, this is called the Allo Clip. It's a, uh, it clips onto your iPhone 4 or 4S. It's a fisheye wide angle or macro lens kit thing. And there's, I've seen some of these out there. Um, before uh, that weren't that great, but um, this one actually works pretty well. Uh, the the both those phones have pretty good cameras, and so it's fun to um, add some lenses to uh, get a little bit more out of it. And uh, the, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the fisheye, but the wide angle and the macro are both um, both pretty cool. So it's uh, the the product came out of a Kickstarter project. If you don't know what Kickstarter is, it's a it's a website that lets people create ideas and have community fund their creation. Um, so it was originally a Kickstarter project that did really well and is now a real product. And um, I got one a couple of weeks ago, and I've been playing with it, and it's fun. So if you like to use your phone to take pictures uh, and you like to be able to experiment a little bit with some different lenses, it is something you should consider. And I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, all right. I think that's it for today. Uh, thanks to everybody for being here. And let me go around the table one more time so you can tell people where they can find you. Dr. Dave, where can people find you? Uh, gaming.unlv.edu, where I'm still updating all the reports with the 2011 information. And also at ggschwartz.com, where I'm sharing all sorts of other fun things that I'm doing around town. Excellent. Mr. Chuck Monster, what about you? People can find me nowhere until this time next week. (laughs) The adventure continues. Um, People can find me at ratevegas.com or at vegasmate.com. Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend.